Right, this is Louis Algeri and Steve Terry. We've been working on a book on George Aiken for the past year, nearly. The efforts of this book is try to answer how was it that this farmer from Putney, Vermont, became such a international voice in the 60s on Vietnam. Welcome to Mud Season, a podcast that cuts through the mud. I'm your producer, Eliza Giles, and today we hear the story of how a Vermont senator helped to end the Vietnam War. We're joined by historian, author, journalist, and former staffer for Senator Aiken, Steve Terry, and UVM student, Louis O'Jerry, authors of an upcoming book on the life and legacy of George Aiken. Mud Season is brought to you by the Center for Research on Vermont, uncovering stories from the Vermont Laboratory. My guest today is the Dean of Senate Republicans and a member of the Foreign Affairs and Agriculture Committees and the Joint Committee on Atomic Energy, Senator George D. Aiken of Vermont. In 1966, in the middle of the Vietnam War, Vermont Senator George Aiken famously took the Senate floor and advised the U.S. government to simply declare victory and get out. Well, these weren't his actual words, but this shorthand version of Senator Aiken's speech has become a common phrase in foreign policy. Say we won and withdraw the troops. Easy enough. What can be done to prevent a communist takeover there? Can, uh, in the last two years, uh, I'd say that uh, our government has made about every mistake in the book in Southeast Asia. That's Senator Aiken talking to Senator Kenneth B. Keating on May 31st, 1964, less than a decade before the end of the war. So often, though, the name behind the quotation gets lost as the phrase continues to apply itself to new and similar circumstances. Who was George Aiken? And how did a senator from Vermont find himself on the Senate floor so early into the Vietnam War? Well, it's not a straightforward story. After all, Aiken, first and foremost, was a Vermonter. He was not only a senator, but a renowned horticulturist. He was a master lobbyist and, in Vermont style, would sometimes send his political adversaries maple syrup in the mail. And maybe his story is more relevant to today's political climate than you think. So Steve, why now? I think there is a need for the country to really understand what it was like when we had the ability to have a bipartisan discussion about foreign policy. George Aiken was a very key role in that. Aiken was born in Dummerston, Vermont in 1892 and grew up on his family's farm in Putney. His father, Edward Webster Aiken, served in state legislator and a young Aiken helped his parents by growing fruits and vegetables. After graduating from Brattleboro High School in 1909, he began cultivating wildflowers commercially. That was really the end of his formal education. His family did not have the resources, so he went back on the farm. Despite not having gone to college, Aiken wanted to follow his father's footsteps into politics. In 1922, he ran for the Vermont House of Representatives and lost. He did. He actually only lost one election in his long career. That isn't to say that he wasn't a popular candidate. In the eyes of the Vermont public, Aiken was an authority on horticulture. By the 1930s, he had published two books on his farming practices. People would ask him questions about how to plant wildflowers. And rather than writing a lot of letters, he decided to do his own book. It was around this time that Aiken successfully started his political career. He ran for House a second time and served from 1931 to 1935 and was elected Speaker of the House in 1933. And his his career really took a huge jump forward in those 10 years uh, from 1930 to 1940. Um, He went from being 
uh, freshman uh, member of the Vermont House to the Speaker, to the Lieutenant Governor, to Governor, and then to Senator in a very short amount of time. This particular story really begins in 1954, though, when Senator Aiken took a seat on the United States Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. At the urging of some of his Republican colleagues. On the part of the Republicans, the timing of this transition was intentional. The Korean Armistice Agreement in 1954 ended the Korean War, and the United States was in the process of regrouping and redirecting the fight against communist expansionism. Immediately, though, the focus of Senate foreign relations sort of turns to Southeast Asia. And so it was during that time that the French were beginning to have issues uh, with Vietnam and, and holding on to their, to their colony there. And in 1954, the French at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu are defeated by North Vietnam or Vietnam. At which point the French asked the U.S. for help and President Eisenhower declines. That starts Aiken's real interest in Southeast Asia, as we have found out. So it's 1954 and the United States is in a strange place. The Korean War is over and the country is about to begin another longer war. Senator Aiken, a wildflower expert from a rural Vermont town, is sitting on the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. The floor is divided and Aiken looks to his colleagues for advice. Tell us about Aiken's relationship with uh, General James Gavin and other, other generals that sort of shaped his uh, understanding right. of the Vietnam well, War. Well, I think he heard uh, Gavin testify several times before the uh, Senate foreign relations. He listened to his advice. The advice was, rather than engaging a lot of U.S. troops in a big land war in Southeast Asia, we should gradually pull back and let the forces on the ground, i.e. North Vietnam and South Vietnam take up the responsibilities of the war. For context, here's Lieutenant General James Gavin on the Senate floor in 1966, after the war had started. The escalation in Southeast Asia was beginning to hurt our strategic position. If this has significance now, it may have tremendous significance in the long run to support a tactical confrontation that appears to be escalating with the will of an enemy. We are in very dangerous territory, in my opinion, and for this reason, what we're doing there deserves looking at. And the Geneva Accord in 1954 was the turning point that brought the U.S. officially into the war. The purpose of the Geneva Conference was to settle outstanding issues resulting from the Korean War, including temporary separation of North and South Vietnam. The U.S. took issue with this. It was the 1950s, the age of McCarthyism and the Cold War, and anti-communist sentiment had become almost unanimous with American culture. The conference resulted in U.S. military forces replacing French military forces. And the war's objective shifted from maintaining France's colonial holds on Vietnam, the purpose of the first Indochina War, to America's continued fight against communism, though the two often blurred together as the war's opponents questioned U.S. presence. That demarcation really was also a source for many years more of real hostile action between the North and the South. Right, and... And when the U.S. really started to get involved uh, in Vietnam, Aiken was not necessarily too enthusiastic about it, but he remained supportive of, of the government largely. In the late 50s and early 1960s, when John F. Kennedy 
became president, he was still willing to give his backing as they were trying to send in more advisors rather than ground troops to help South Vietnam fight the war against the North. And Aiken remained supportive of JFK, um, sort of assuming that if he had won his election in 1964, that he would have started to withdraw and pull out. Here's an interview with President John F. Kennedy in 1963. President, the only hot war we've got running at the moment is, of course, the one in Vietnam. I don't think that uh, unless a greater effort is made by the government to win popular support, that the war can be won out there. In the final analysis, it's their war. They're the ones who have to win it or lose it. We can help them, we can give them equipment, we can send our men out there as advisors, but they have to win it, the people of Vietnam, against the communists. Right. I think that's one of the important findings that we have found in right. this in this book through discussions that I personally had with Aiken when I was on his staff from 1969 to 75 and what John F. Kennedy had told Senator Mike Mansfield, who was Aiken's close ally, that JFK really had changed his mind about the war. But he did not dare to advocate that until he got reelected in 1964. Three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Lyndon Johnson became our president um, upon JFK's assassination. Lyndon Baines Johnson returns to familiar settings in an unfamiliar role as 36th president of the United uh, States. And took a stance on the Vietnam War, which Aiken very quickly uh, came to, to dislike. I mean, more so than he had uh, anything JFK had done. But involvement in Vietnam was controversial, both in Democratic and Republican circles. Yes, in 1965, as Lyndon Johnson was ramping up the war, he was under a lot of other internal pressure within his administration. Isn't there another strategy? Lyndon Johnson asked uh, Senator Mansfield and Senator Aiken and three other uh, senators to go on a month-long inspection tour of Southeast Asia. And when they returned... They issued a report. They actually had, as, as we know now, two reports. They had a private report, which they gave directly to President Johnson. And then a few weeks later, they had a more public report. The private report was incredibly pessimistic and, in fact, advised Lyndon Johnson. There was no way to win this war in a conventional Way. Here's a recording of a conversation between President Lyndon Johnson and Senator Mike Mansfield in 1965. Well, uh, there is that feeling on a widespread. It is hard to say, but there's a feeling of uh, apprehension and suspense up here that's pretty hard to find, and it's pretty widespread uh, on both sides. Well, we have it here. I know you do. It's worse. In the same phone call, Johnson asks Mansfield about Aiken's apprehension after the visit. I was a little bit distressed to tell us that many Republicans voted against his dead yesterday, and particularly men like George Aiken. Uh, uh, 
Do you think it, uh, does he think it, uh, what's his thinking? I, I haven't seen it, I haven't heard it, I just saw it on the ticker. Oh, he thinks it's too late, and he's very, he's tremendously disturbed about the situation in Vietnam. And uh, it's, uh, well, we I know, but I mean, uh, uh, really, and he's uh, made some uh, strong statements, and uh, he just uh, feels it's been a little too late that it's tied in with the 700 million, and uh, uh, he's thinking along that line. In the beginning of this podcast, we mentioned Senator Aiken's bipartisanship. We just listened to a taped conversation where President Johnson, a Democrat, is asking Senator Mansfield, also a Democrat, about the political opinions of Senator Aiken, a Republican. We can talk about that relationship for a second. So Senator Mansfield was the Democratic uh, leader, the majority leader in the U.S. Senate for much of Aiken's time there. Um, and it's, it's very strange. You wouldn't, see, you wouldn't see Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell lunching daily. But George Aiken and Mike Mansfield had breakfast each morning together, didn't they? They absolutely did. Uh, every morning they would uh, meet in the Capitol, and um, they would have uh, the Senator Aiken would have a would have a coffee and English muffin, with and uh, Senator Mansfield would have his English muffin. And um, what what they talked about always remain private. It's a it's a level of respect and sort of ne- neglecting the partisanship that, that, that exists uh, in politics and, and coming together. It's just not something that you not see today. But, but But Aiken used that to his advantage often right. and, and was able to get a lot done. And Aiken's strategic friendships weren't exclusive to the Senate. In fact, Aiken was even friendly with LBJ. Um, politically, they were often opposed um, on the war, uh, yet they maintained a somewhat friendly relationship as we've as we've seen um, through phone calls between the two of them. Yes. Senator Aiken of 90. George. George. Yeah, Lennon. I don't talk to you in confidence about something and uh, ask you. I can't hear very good, but I'll try. Where are you, Vermont? I'm in Vermont. Uh, I want to talk to you in confidence about something, George, and just uh, I'll tell you what my problem is. <laughs> well, uh, my daughter, I'll tell Linda to talk to you. She's an aching man, and she invited herself to your luncheon the other day. I didn't invite her. I hope you know that. Well, I'm darn glad she came. I'll tell you, these these young girls, when they're 21, they want to go see you. It makes me uh, want to eat more maple syrup. Well, but... George, you have to do that to all of us. I guess I do. <laughs> yeah, well, my, well, I'm mighty glad I got a friend like you, though. Well, anytime uh, I want you, whenever you need me, I'll be around. I know that. Good, goodbye. Yeah, bye. Politically, however, the two were still frequently at odds, and this would continue to escalate as the Vietnam War went on. As, as we said earlier, the uh, the relationship Aiken had with LBJ and the war was markedly different than that. Uh, which he had with with JFK, um, LBJ was not interested so much in in ramping down the war. He was there to win. For reference, here's President Lyndon B. Johnson in 1965. Its goal is to conquer the South, to defeat American power, and to extend the Asiatic dominion of communism. And Aiken took issue with that and began to speak out about it. Right. LBJ was ramping up the war, right. sending in more troops, and um, Aiken's 
level of apprehension and alarm was rising by the moment. Senator Mansfield. Second, Senator Aiken says that we should not resume bombing uh, uh, unless Noah acts to widen the war. And you can you can see that that sort of evolution from sort of sitting sitting quiet and on on the issue to to speaking out against the war. Um, you can see that specifically in his letters to constituents, right. the Aiken papers, and in those uh, we find him speaking out against the war to constituents privately for quite a long time before 1966. Uh, it was not something that he would say in public or on the Senate floor. And as we have also seen, because we now have the declassified Senate foreign relations meetings, and we can see Aiken's rising concern. So with Aiken's, Aiken's frustration building, obviously, and, and LBJ's refusal to, to take his advice, and Aiken took the drastic step drastic in comparison to how he had thus far conducted himself on speaking about the war, he, on October 19th, 1966, took to the floor of the U.S. Senate and delivered a speech denouncing the U.S. involvement in, in the war and suggesting that we begin a strategic phased withdrawal. And that we declare from a military perspective that we had won the war. Correct. Which went entirely against what LBJ was was attempting to to achieve there. The speech was something Aiken had wanted to do, and he timed it because, as we know, Lyndon Johnson was about to go to Manila with his delegation to do an assessment of the war. So Aiken found that the right time to offer his famous advice, right. which was often in journalistic shorthand called declare victory and get out. And that was what Aiken has become known for after all these years. And in that speech, you can see his, uh, the influence that, that those generals had on him. Uh, and I know I ought to know better than to quote one general to another. But <laughs> But nevertheless, General Gavin told us that he thought the problem was how to make a truce consistent with the military effort. That idea had been planted in Aiken's head really in the late 1950s and something that he held on to. And as we know, LBJ flatly turned it down. But Aiken's speech started something. It was covered by news outlets and people were listening despite the efforts of the president. So obviously Aiken's Aiken's speech made uh, headlines across the country. But how, how was it received in his home state of Vermont? Well, it was um, received in a mixed way, I would say. The Burlington Free Press basically thought he was joking, but the Rutland Herald really felt that Aiken had offered some fresh new thinking on the speech and also reflected that in its uh, editorial commentary. And in 1969, President Richard Nixon took to the office and Aiken was optimistic about having a Republican president. Two important things happened. In 1969, Aiken was the senior Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations. So as such, with a Republican administration, he was kind of expected to carry the water for the new administration before Senate foreign relations. Aiken was not necessarily one to be corralled by by the No, and he never, that was ne- never his style to be 
in effect told what to do. Right. He was he was a very independent Vermonter, but he did uh, advise the Nixon administration: you've got to start with drawing troops. And and the Nixon administration took action by June of 1969. Nixon announced what became known as the Vietnamization policy, which was a fancy way to say the U.S. would gradually withdraw troops and the South Vietnam Army would take more of a combat role. But Nixon's Vietnamization wasn't just about U.S. forces exiting Vietnam. In 1969, Nixon authorized bombing of Cambodia in response to northern Vietnamese military in Cambodia in a series of bombing campaigns that would continue through 1973. This is Julian Barber from Washington, D.C., reporting on President Nixon's Cambodian decision, which has been a subject of controversy in this country and abroad. And when Nixon's, when the Nixon administration did begin, begin bombing Cambodia, how did they can respond? He was very, very angry. He was surprised. He issued some critical comments about Nixon, and one of the things he said is that if he was up for re-election, he couldn't be elected dog catcher. Here's Richard Nixon defending his Cambodia campaign. Ten days ago, in my report to the nation on Vietnam, I announced the decision to withdraw an additional 150,000 Americans from Vietnam over the next year. I said then that I was making that decision despite our concern over increased enemy activity in Laos, in Cambodia, and in South Vietnam. And at that time, I warned that if I concluded that increased enemy activity in any of these areas endangered the lives of Americans remaining in Vietnam, I would not hesitate to take strong and effective measures to deal with that situation. But that, that was a breaking point for... Aiken on his uh, support for Nixon, and it started a real uh, change in the public attitude in the country. So as the war continued to become more of a public issue, um, we started to get hearings in Congress on the war. And in 1971, uh, we saw our future Secretary of State, John Kerry, testify on behalf of Vietnam veterans before Congress. My Sitting up here is really symbolic. I'm not here as John Kerry. I'm here as one member of a group of 1,000, which is a small representation of a very much larger group of veterans in this country. The country doesn't know it yet. But it's created a monster. A monster in the form of millions of men who have been taught to deal and to trade in violence and who are given the chance to die the biggest nothing in history. And uh, that was a real, um, very high emotional moment for Aiken himself and for the, the country. Um, remember, one of John Kerry's statement was, um, who are we to say that, or who will be the last man to die in Vietnam? And so it was a speech that I was there as a young staff member, but Aiken was intensely uh, focused on that, that presentation. And there is a wonderful uh, colloquy between Senator Aiken and John Kerry, which in effect um, Aiken said, well, if we wanted to withdraw 
don't you think North Vietnam would help us carry our bags out of Vietnam? And it was a moment in, in that uh, testimony. And obviously Vietnam, uh, the Vietnam War had a deep effect on the public's trust um, of the government. Well, the end of the war, uh, as you know, came uh, in April of 1975. Senator Aiken had retired that earlier in January. But Aiken was at home watching television when the last U.S. helicopter left the embassy, American embassy, in Saigon, bringing the war to an end, or at least the U.S. involvement in the war. Thank you for listening to Mud Season, presented by the Center for Research on Vermont. This week's episode is titled Declare Victory and Get Out, the legacy of Vermont Senator George Aiken. Brought to you by me, your host and producer, Eliza Giles. This episode included audio clips provided by C-SPAN, the University of Rochester Digital Collections, and the University of Virginia Miller Center. Special thanks to Steve Terry and Louis O'Jerry. If you're studying Vermont, either as a profession or as a hobby, consider applying for membership to the Center for Research on Vermont. It costs nothing and will help keep up to date with the latest Vermont news and research, as well as future podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter and Instagram under username at CRVT underscore. If you know of a story that should be featured on our show, please contact us. If we miss something or if anything in this episode is incorrect, please email us at CRVT at uvm.edu and we'll update the information. Regardless, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.